1: So how was it booking your last doctor's appointment?
0: If I'm honest, here in London, getting a doctor's appointment can be impossible sometimes. Being told I've got to wait months just to see a doctor, it can be a bit annoying,
2: yeah.
1: I don't book any doctor's appointments. I try to actively avoid it because it's so hard to book.
2: It took me almost, well, more than a year and a half.
3: Booking my last doctor's appointment, it was a bit of a difficulty, considering the waiting time when you're booking it over the phone.
4: From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, healthcare systems across Europe are starting to crack. For decades, the UK's National Health Service and public health care systems in Sweden, France, and other European nations were held up as a model to the world. Unlike in the US, where a simple doctor's visit can mean a staggering bill, the European systems provide cradle-to-grave care for everyone at low cost to patients. But in recent years, some of those systems have come under extreme financial strain, and they're now struggling to keep up with the needs of the people they serve. I think
2: we need to be flexible, be open, and bring innovation so that we can adapt to the new changing needs of the population. That's Dr. Thomas
4: Zapata of the World Health Organization. He's here to talk about how governments are trying to prevent these systems from collapsing. It's a problem one WHO official likened to a ticking time bomb. But first, Bloomberg's Naomi Kresky and Jonas Ekblom on why this is happening now in so many countries at the same time.
1: In one-third of countries in Europe, more than 40% of doctors are more than 55 years old. And if you do the math on that, you can see that there's a big problem ahead. The workforce of medical workers is older in the EU than it is in the U.S. I crunched these numbers myself, and every time I hear them, it just shocks me again. In Italy, 56% of doctors are over the age of 55. In France, it's about 44%. In Germany, almost 45% of doctors are over the age of 55. They don't have enough young doctors to replace the doctors who are getting older, and other types of medical workers as well. So the ticking time bomb issue is really this age issue, but that's just a piece of a broader
4: problem. And Jonas, what are some of those other problems?
3: You're talking about like the huge demographic changes, an aging population that requires not only more advanced care, but also more like prolonged care. Medical care and medical treatment is becoming increasingly advanced and increasingly expensive as well. Like we're not talking about necessarily simple drugs, we're talking about very expensive drugs, which like weigh on like healthcare budgets even more and uh, machines and like other treatments are also getting more expensive. So uh, healthcare systems are really stuck between like a rock and a hard place when it comes to uh, European healthcare and, and obviously in a lot of other developed countries around the world as well. So, But it's very pronounced in Europe.
1: It's sort of a dual demographic challenge where demographics are driving an increase in the need for healthcare at the same time that demographics are reducing the ability of hospitals and healthcare systems to provide healthcare. I was talking recently with a European politician who said that the cost of medicines issue alone is like a giant iceberg that European healthcare systems are sort of driving toward as if they were the Titanic, because all of this is so expensive.
3: The situation is quite similar across Europe. Just take, for example, the UK and their National Health Service, where doctors and nurses are striking and talk about increasingly poor working conditions like long hours and... uh, not being able to provide sufficient care for their patients and also working with extremely low pay. And the same is true for like a lot of other places in Europe.
4: So here we are, we're talking about the health system. We started out talking about a ticking time bomb. Then Naomi, you compared it to the Titanic hitting an iceberg. So pretty dramatic Situation for those of us who aren't as familiar with the European healthcare systems, what's the sort of broad differences between the European style model of healthcare and the US healthcare model? There's
1: sometimes a sort of a mistaken equation of all European health systems being the same as the National Health Service in England, like a single payer system where the government is organizing everything and paying things. And that's not necessarily the case. There are many different ways that healthcare is provided in Europe. But the overarching difference, I think, is that you don't have to be worried in Europe as a consumer of healthcare about whether your healthcare is going to bankrupt you. If you walk into a hospital in France or in Germany and you need healthcare, in some cases you might not even see the bill. It doesn't mean that your healthcare is free, but the overarching idea is that there will be fair and equitable care available for everybody who needs it.
4: And Jonas, I guess the other big difference between the U.S. and all the various European models is that healthcare isn't tied to your job, that you don't feel like you have to stay in a job for fear of not being able to pay for your medication or your health needs. Exactly,
3: and um, I feel like that comes back to what Naomi was saying, that's like fair and equitable to everyone, because like even if it might be paid from, for example, like, you know, deductions from your pay or your wages or whatnot, it's still funded in a fashion that it's, it doesn't rely on you holding down a job or something like that.
4: You're in Stockholm, and Sweden is often held up as a real example of a healthcare system that treats people well. How does it work there when you go to the doctor in Sweden?
3: So um, you pay actually your own contribution. We're talking about the range of like 30 $40. You only do that up to like $200 per year. After that, everything is completely free. The same goes for like, for example, like drugs and medicine, like up into an amount of about like, you know, $200, you pay the cost yourself. Otherwise, you uh, just roll up to your, uh, be it like a primary care facility or the hospital and most is taking care of you. But like every single visit, be it an emergency room or like a multi-day hospital stay or whatever, it's still only that $30 cost for you as a private individual.
4: And Naomi, you're based in Berlin. You go see your doc in Berlin. How's it work there?
1: In Germany, there's a network of non-profit public insurers that actually compete with one another. They offer maybe slightly different things, and some are seen as better and more desirable than others. There are a lot of them. The last time I looked, I think there were about 300 of these so about nine-tenths of people have this public insurance and about one-tenth have private insurance, which is slightly cheaper when you're younger, more expensive when you're older. <laughs> so, and when you go to the doctor, if you're publicly insured, you have an insurance card that you present. Whether you receive a bill or not, it's not going to make you worry about bankrupting yourself for your health care. Personal example, my mom was visiting last summer. We wound up having to make an emergency room visit because she fell down. So short outpatient visit, Rode in in an ambulance to the hospital, got the bill for the ambulance. I think it was $160. The outpatient visit for the hospital was like about a hundred bucks, I think, if I'm recalling correctly. We're talking about like very low three-digit numbers. And this is without insurance at all. We just hate it. The cost structure is just a completely different one.
4: Jonas, both you and Naomi are in big European cities, but you write that the situation is much different in rural areas, and that's kind of part of the big tension here.
3: As healthcare grows increasingly complex when it comes to, for example, be it fairly simple conditions to like cancer or like cardiac care or whatever, there's been a trend to centralize and uh, specialize in the bigger cities, which goes hand in hand with like decreasing costs too. But that obviously creates a bit of a dilemma because care again might be a bit more limited to the bigger cities. Like a big problem in Sweden, for example, which is, it's as big as California as it comes to like you know the size of the country a lot of empty space, like rural areas too. And uh, a fairly specialized emergency care, for example, is like pregnancy care and like delivery rooms. And there's been like a lot of places where like pregnant women, like about to give birth, like needs to travel for like, you know, several hours to actually get into like a delivery room that can actually accept them.
1: There's this idea of the medical desert. And in France, a very large portion of the area of the country actually is medical desert, like places where people can't get to a doctor quickly. And it's a big political problem. In France, they don't have enough general practitioners in small towns or rural places, or in some cases, in poor neighborhoods of big cities, like sort of the poor suburbs surrounding Paris might also be medical desert, where people are not able to get quick access to a general practitioner who's close by. They might wind up in the emergency room because they did not get their care from their primary care doctor.
4: After the break, health systems compete to lure doctors away from neighboring countries.
3: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, Junior doctors in the U.K.
4: have begun a four-day walkout.
0: Unions have made a final plea for the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to discuss higher pay settlements for workers in the NHS. The largest nursing strike in NHS history is underway. Thousands of junior doctors are striking today and they'll be on strike until 7 o'clock on Saturday morning.
4: What you heard there is just what's going on in the U.K. And medical professionals have been striking across Europe. Naomi, what are some of the problems that doctors and nurses are facing right now that has them so upset?
1: There's a pay issue, certainly. And we see that in France with healthcare workers striking, marching in the streets. There's a big debate over the amount of money that doctors get per visit. There's a push to double it to 50 euros per visit, which when you think about it, is actually still a very small number. It's also important to put all of this into context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Spending on healthcare in Europe had risen for decades. And then at around the time of the financial crisis in 2008, it kind of went flat as a percentage of GDP and stopped rising. Then tensions were building in the systems. There wasn't as much increase in money as there had used to be, plus demographic issues that we've discussed. And then COVID happens. And the healthcare systems are under extreme strain. Also, a lot of money is pouring into the systems all of a sudden, but a lot of it is for things like COVID vaccines and short term solutions for beds and clinics. There's not a whole lot of money coming into structural reform. It's more like putting a lot of band aids on some very big problems. And now, For a few years, workers have been super stressed. They're super burnt out. Nurses are leaving. Coming out of COVID, we just had a horrible winter in Europe for, as I'm sure in the U.S. as well, for um, respiratory diseases, pneumonia, RSV, really stressed emergency rooms. And then add, of course, in cost of living crisis, which healthcare workers also feel, and you've got this bubbling pot of resentment, I would say, in hospitals in many different European countries.
3: A lot of these issues predate the COVID pandemic by years or even decades, like sometimes, and uh, the healthcare professionals and the healthcare staff is really being pinched in like every direction here, like Naomi was saying. And uh, a big thing too, like talking to healthcare professionals, you hear they want to work in this field, they want to provide care, and uh, they do very often put their heart into their jobs.
4: And that's, of course, something that healthcare workers in the U.S. and everywhere else seem to be experiencing, too, these incredible strains that wind up affecting their own lives. And you spoke to a number of healthcare workers in different European cities. What do they have to say about what it's been like for them?
1: We and and our colleagues in Paris and Rome, who also worked on this story, spoke to a number of doctors in different countries and nurses as well. And they all kind of had similar things to say that they feel like they're not serving their patients as they could because they're spread too thin. And I talked to one orthopedic surgeon in Madrid who talked about how when she has her morning shift. Like, morning shift in this Madrid hospital is sort of, I think, from 8 a.m. to, like, 3 p.m. or 2 p.m. So it's a pretty long shift, but she has to get through 40 patients. She would normally have 20 patients. That's the number of appointments she has, but the administrative staff at her hospital double books each single appointment, and so she'll have 40 people there. So she has, like, five minutes per patient, and she doesn't really have time to do much more than speak in a really superficial way with them. She said a lot of them are older people who have you know, arthritis, degenerative disease, joint problems, and she can't fix their issues in five minutes. She doesn't even really have time to explain to them that this is an issue of aging and that they might actually not feel better and... I think what she said to me is they might have an incurable disease, but you can't tell them that in three minutes. And so what she winds up doing is maybe giving a few bits of advice and then booking them in for another consult six months down the line. And it just creates this snowball effect of people just coming back. In order to make them feel like she's giving something to them, she'll she'll give them these repeat appointments, but it doesn't solve anything. It's, it's not the way that she would prefer to be giving care <laughs> to these people.
3: Yeah, I can only agree. Like I feel like the, the most heartbreaking thing talking to healthcare staff is this fact, like they want to provide a more holistic, uh, like long-term type of care, which allows them to care for the whole human and not just like the most urgent like symptom or illness they might be suffering from like right there and then.
4: Jonas, let's hear what one doctor in Stockholm you spoke to had to say about what it's like to practice medicine there right now. Our hospitals are getting full almost every day, and it leads to a one-in, one-out situation where we have to choose between different patients that all need hospital care. We're constantly forced to break rules, break routines, and our moral compass. When I come as a ICU consultant to the emergency room and um, perhaps there are three patients that need intensive care and we just have one last intensive care bed left, then I have to choose which patient that gets that spot and which two patients that don't. So I have to choose which patients will get the greatest chance to survive. That's not how it should be. And here's a nurse in France who's talking about what work these days is like for her. In France nobody applies to hospital jobs anymore
1: because those jobs aren't attractive at all. Salaries are low compared to other places and working conditions are deteriorating a lot. So these days to provide our care services, we're always in a rush. It's care that we do back to back and not well. We don't have time to drink or eat. We don't have time to go to the bathroom. We barely have time to sit down. We don't have time to talk to patients, to families, to communicate with them what's going on.
4: Naomi, one of the things you write in the story is that lower-income countries in the EU have become what you call feeder nations for their wealthier neighbors. What does that mean?
1: That was something that somebody at the World Health Organization pointed out to me. He cited the example of Romania which produces the most medical school graduates per capita in the European Union, but at the same time has a below average density of healthcare workers. And that's because the doctors are migrating. In Germany, where I think more than one in 10 doctors were educated elsewhere, Romanian doctors are the biggest immigrant group.
4: Because they can make more money practicing in Berlin than they can at home.
1: Correct. The average annual pay for a specialist doctor in Germany is about 166,000 euros a year. That's, depending on exchange rate, about $176,000. And that's at least three times more than what doctors would get in in Romania. So there are clear economic incentives. And then at the same time, German doctors move to Switzerland, (laughs) which pays even better. And... Doctors from, you know, Eastern Europe will also wind up in Sweden. With a single market comes an ability for high-skilled workers to go elsewhere, and they do.
4: We started this conversation with this idea of a social contract in Europe that people feel that they have cradle-to-grave healthcare coverage. How is this crisis affecting the kind of public trust in the healthcare systems?
1: It harms the trust in healthcare systems and that in turn is a political liability for politicians in Europe because how people view healthcare is really linked to their trust in government as well and we've seen it you know european countries and politicians acknowledging and responding to the problem in january the french president emmanuel macron acknowledged what he called the personal and collective exhaustion that healthcare workers have had to deal with. And he pledged to spend more money and to do some reforms. In Germany, Health Minister Karl Lauterbach um, is working to overhaul the hospital system. I Guess we'll have to see how effective those reforms are.
4: Naomi, Jonas, thanks so much for speaking with me today.
1: Thanks, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having us.
4: When we come back, what can be done to turn these ailing health systems around? So where do things go from here? Our producer Federica Romaniello spoke to someone who thinks about this question all the time, Dr. Tomas Zapata. He heads the World Health Organization's Office of Health, Workforce and Service Delivery in Europe.
1: At the end of March, the World Health Organization held a high-level regional meeting to discuss just how serious the situation in Europe is and offer... Actions for governments to take. What are the recommendations that the WHO came up with?
2: We need to better retain health workers. That means that those health workers that are already in the health systems all over Europe, we need to improve the working conditions so they want to stay in the system. That includes a fair remuneration that depends on the country, that includes increased flexibility in working arrangements. We need, for example, zero tolerance to violence against health workers. That's something that is coming up in some countries as well. It's important also as part of improving working conditions. One of the main areas that we have is that in rural areas, in many countries in the region, it's difficult to recruit and retain health workers in rural areas. So for that, we need to bring a combination of incentives, not only financial, to make it more attractive for health workers to work in rural areas. Then we have measures in order to improve education in terms of not only improving numbers, but I think we need to improve the quality and what we teach, which competencies are we teaching to our health workers and the future generations of health workers. Then a third element is optimizing the performance. we have limited health workers, so we need to make the best use of the time that they have. And for that, we need to reduce all the bureaucracy attached to clinical practice. We need to optimize and reorganize the reorganize health services so that we can maximize that time, that clinical time of the physician, of the nurse, and other types of health professionals with the patient. And in order to do all this, we need two enablers. One of them is improved planning of the health workforce. And the second enabler is investing. We need to invest more and also more smartly in those areas that really add value.
1: Where do you see the state of the healthcare workforce in Europe head in the years to come?
2: We have a window of opportunity at the moment and countries are taking seriously this. So if they take the actions in terms of all the actions that we have mentioned, we should be able to go in a future direction when we have a sufficient health workforce in terms of numbers, also in terms of skills, of competencies in order to deliver services that is adequately distributed in rural, remote, and underserved areas. And also with a health workforce that is performing adequately, that is motivated and with high standards of performance and quality. Of course, I think we need to be flexible be open and bring innovation so that we can adapt to the new changing needs of the population. We know that population is aging, more chronic diseases, more There are also increased expectations by the patients. We also have backlogs from the COVID pandemic. So all these things are making that the demand for services are increasing. So we need to factor all these things in the future so that we can start preparing the health workforce now to be able to cope with that increased demand in the future.
1: Dr. Tomas Zapata, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Thank you so much, Federica.
4: Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicky Vergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Federica Romaniello is our producer. Our associate producer is Zenib Siddiqui. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take.